As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Power Hour, the Athletics Tuesday National College Football Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Nicole Auerbach. And I am thrilled, as always, to be joined by my friend and colleague, Michael Felder from Stadium, to break down all the biggest storylines in college football this week in an hour or less. And as a reminder, if you enjoy this podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review The Andy Staples Show and Friends. Five stars, because much like Ari Wasserman's favorite recruits, we would like to make an immediate impact. And... Felder, we are on, is this week 10, week 9, week 10? We're, we're somewhere in between. Oh, we're going into week 10. I week 10. I count. <laughs> of course. I should be. I should be. But we're at the point in the season where, like, I can't remember what day of the week we're at, except Saturday. That's the only one. And Maction. <laughs> we got Maction now. So it's going to be throwing my schedule off even more with Tuesday and Wednesday night games. So we are at that point in the season. We're also at the point in the season where we're going to be talking more and more about college football playoff rankings, which we are not going to do a ton on that in this specific show, but Andy Staples will have a full reaction pod after the first set of rankings is out on Tuesday night. And I will be in Dallas later this week to cover a meeting about the future of the college football playoff and about what it's going to look like if and when they expand um, and you know, they're still just trying to figure out consensus. This is a process that's been going on for really two years, two and a half years, if you count the working group. And then you also had them unveiling the 12 team proposal back in June. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, so what do you expect to happen when you, you go to Dallas, you're going to yeah. go to this meeting. Do you think that they're going to arrive at a decision or are they just, are we still going to be talking? You know, I honestly have no idea because everyone going into this meeting isn't sure. And Really what's happening now is you have a couple people uh, digging in on wanting an eight-team proposal. And a lot of those people digging in are in the ACC and the Big Ten. And they believe that if they had gotten to be part of the process earlier, they would have landed on an eight-team proposal. And eight is what we all kind of expected. Before 12 entered our world, we thought that would be the next natural step. So they're talking about you know the potential of a team playing 17 games, 
adding an extra round and just kind of like the, the, the scheduling impact of that, all of these pieces, but also this idea that in a 12-team model with six at-larges, you know, certain teams are going to have an advantage. Like the SEC is going to get a bunch of teams in every year, but sure. so with the Big Ten. But Notre Dame has an easier path. So it's things like that. But basically everybody else in the room wants 12, is good with 12, thinks that they should be moving forward in this process. So it's really going to come down to whatever day a couple of people decide to concede their points and be willing to compromise to move forward. Because I think the worst case scenario here would be not reaching any sort of compromise on size and staying at four mm-hmm. because people are not happy with four. Okay. I, 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 that's genuine curiosity coming from me because, like, I don't like. We've got who, who's on like who's on which side? I guess that's the other part because if, for someone who works really hard to not care about this, like who, who, who are the sides? What do I need to pay attention to going into this and then look for coming out? So this is a meeting of the ten FBS commissioners. So it's the Greg Sankey's. Kevin Warren's, George Klavkov, those types, and Jack Swarbrick, Notre Dame's athletic director. So we know based on who was in the group, the working group that came up with the 12-team model and just logically what people think, and Greg Sankey talked over the weekend about this, like we know the SEC, Notre Dame, Big 12, and the group of five leagues all support a 12-team model. There's access. Um, it, it expands the pool of teams that stay interesting down the stretch, that are engaged, that have path to the playoff. And really the question has been, well, what about the quote unquote, the Alliance leagues? And they're the ones who, you know, were upset about not being in the working group, have been, you know, very vocal about the process and about elements of the process that weren't involved here. So we know, or I know based on my conversations that the ACC is very interested in an 18 model, not 12. So is the Big Ten. And then that the Pac-12 is open to 8 or 12 because they just need this thing to expand. So I don't know if that eventually means that the Big Ten gets more on board with 12 and then the ACC realizes they can't be the only holdout. Like maybe that's the eventual end game here or maybe they're going to use different pieces for leverage. Like if they want their conference champion to be an AQ, Maybe that becomes part of the 12 team model instead of the way that it was written as, you know, highest ranked conference champions, which would guard against like a, if Pitt upset Clemson a couple years ago or whatever, you know, that that team would have been ranked too low to make the playoff. Right. So there's there's definitely elements and things that could possibly be uh, bargained, but that's where you are coming in. And I think people are just curious to know, you know, are those couple of leagues who are really stuck on the 18 model? are they going to be willing to engage on 12? And so I think ultimately, you know, with so many preferring 12, like you've got to think that's where it's going to end up. And you've had Greg Sankey say, like, I'm, I support four, the status quo, and I support 12. So, you know, you have that in the group of five leagues. I don't see how you're going to get that many people over to an 18 model with fewer at large spots. So, at some point, um, you've got to think that it will eventually land on 12. We just don't know how to get there and how many more meetings it will take to do that. But I think people are cautiously optimistic and some are you know, probably a little bit more pessimistic heading into the meetings because you just don't know 
what people in the minority opinion are going to come into the meeting feeling. So ideally we can move forward. They need to, you know, again, coalesce around a certain size before they can work out all the other details. They believe they can do that in terms of TV contracts and bowl contracts. So that's the next step. And then hopefully we'll know if we can get an expanded field by 2024, 2025, or even 2026, you know, in the next couple of weeks. You mentioned moving forward and TCU's moving forward without Gary Patterson. Yes. So this was pretty stunning in terms of timing. um, And we can get into that in a second, but this happened Sunday night with a few games left and TCU's athletic director said in the statement that they asked Gary Patterson to coach out the rest of the season. And he said, no, which if you know, Gary Patterson, of course he was going to say no to that. Um, So this is just kind of a bizarre end and certainly abrupt. And we can talk about why TCU felt they needed to do this. But this is someone who has been synonymous with your program, has has lifted your program, multiple conference moves um, and and really elevated your school. As we talk about, you know, athletics being the front porch and and all those things. He's got a statue of himself outside of the stadium. And we had a midseason firing or, quote, parting of the ways so it's it's just a bizarre way to end that tenure like I just continue to be stunned by that on a Sunday night press release you know just for someone who who meant so much to that program but you've got to think that the reason they did it now was that Texas Tech opened and if you're interested in Sonny Dykes you gotta make a move now and try to keep pace in that search I mean I don't know why else you would do this to someone like Gary Patterson with a program like TCU and all he's meant to you, unless you feel like you've got to make a jump on the next search. Well, I, I, I still am, uh, I live, I'm living in this space where I'm still not sure that you're getting a jump on a guy that already has a job. And one of the ways that I look at it is Will Healy, uh, excuse me, not Will Healy, uh, Mike Houston, right? And everybody was like, Charlotte thought they had Mike Houston, and then the ECU job opened up, and he was like, nope, I'd rather have this one. Uh, Manny Diaz, right? Temple's like, we got our coach. And then Manny Diaz is like, nope, I'm going back here. So I think coaches are still going to pick the job that they want the most. Uh, I don't know that doing it earlier is as big of a deal uh, as people make it out to be, unless you're going to hire – like, realistically, unless you're hiring someone that doesn't have a job, Ohio State with Urban Meyer or UNC with Butch Davis – you're going to have to wait until the end because they're not leaving that job in the middle to come to your job. I think this is interesting, though. I think it's, um, I think it's interesting the timing because he is not just well liked; he is beloved by everyone that's played football there. Um, but he's with uh, Marshall Newhouse, and he's just like, yeah, he's the man. So this is one of those things where I think they had to kind of extract him before he had a chance to plea his case if you will I don't know for, for lack of a better terminology and it's going to be interesting to see who they get because I, maybe it maybe it is Sonny Dykes maybe it's also maybe it's it's Sonny Cumbie like who knows who knows who they target who knows who they want but this is going to be a very bizarre weird end of the year for them um, because this is a program over the course of my career and for 20 years that has, unlike other programs, they've felt like they've always had a rudder. And now they're a little, essentially rudderless. And that's going to be interesting to see how they proceed. Well, and, and let's talk a little bit about why they, why they felt like they had to do this. I mean, some of the things that we've taken 
for granted about what a TCU team looks like haven't really been there, right? Like we talk about the defense and the way that they've played this year. Um, You know, they've kind of stretched a little bit on guys like Zachary Evans and, you know, maybe that's not going as well because it is a little bit of a departure from the type of player that TCU gets or or whatever it might be. But you you want a five-star guy. You want a game-changing player. Um, what, what, when you diagnose what's what's gone wrong, uh, why TCU you know hasn't been a Big Twelve contender in a, in a number of years, what do you point to? I mean, I think the big issue for them, like their defense, isn't where they want it to be. Uh, step one, they, it's not, and I don't, I, I don't know. It's an evolving. We're watching an evolving picture, and what we're seeing are. In the Big 12, we're seeing teams continue to push on offense, but also we're seeing a a bit of a resurgence in defense. And I think that having to lean on, and this is something that we saw, we talked about it with Pitt, we've talked about it with um, UAB earlier this year, at least I've talked about it with UAB earlier this year, you had to lean on your offense a little bit more. And they've had to lean on their offense. And leaning on your offense puts you in a position where it's a score, score, and score some more situation. And, And for TCU, it's not comfortable but they showed that they could do it, but it's also an easier way to lose. And what I mean by easier way to lose is when you look at their games and the way that they've lost games is is quite striking compared to what we are quote unquote used to seeing. But when you look at the way that they, like, yes, they beat Cal. Then the way that they lose to, to SMU, when they're like, man, we if we could just not let them score 42 points, we would have been fine because 34 there were, for, for 20 years, 34 points was enough for TCU to win every single game they played. And then you look at the same thing with Texas where you lose by five and you don't get quite enough offense. You have to score 52 to beat Texas Tech and you give up 52 to Oklahoma and you're just like, what are we doing? Like 31 points would have been enough to beat Oklahoma almost every other year out of TCU and now we can't do it that way because we're giving up too many points. So I think it's about, and we talk a lot about this, but it's about identity and who they are. And the offense has kind of slowed down between the, the last couple games between West Virginia and Kansas State. The offense hasn't been able to hit its stride. And obviously, I know they've dealt with some issues, but this is, it's just, this is a team that's trying to still figuring itself out. And um, they, TCU is usually a football program that after they go, what was it last year, five and five, five, six and four, they, they're a team that they have a, after that year, they have a bounce back year. But when you go five and seven to six and four, and then this year you don't bounce back at all, I think they're starting to see themselves kind of viewing themselves at least as trending downward. And they've been in this, essentially this rut since what, 2016, 2017, they went 2017. They've been in this rut since 2017, or excuse me, post 2017, 2017, they won 11 games. And then after that, they've kind of just been riding the line. And I think they're ready to to inject a little bit of uh, energy and a little bit of change into the program. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see where they go next, again, with someone who's been just a legend and and someone, you know, like literally towering over the program. He, he's got a statue. Uh, so that's pretty fascinating. Jerry Kill will be the interim head coach the rest of the season. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Let's shift gears over to, to Georgia. And, you know, we're running out of things to say on a lot of these shows and a lot of these conversations about the number one team in the country. And I wonder if that's because, you know, like, do, do we want to analyze, you know, who they've played and, and what we see from them on the field week to week? Is it just that we are so enamored with the idea of an elite, elite, elite defense um, that we and, and also that some of the comp- level of competition they had to play earlier in the season? Are, are we watching them closely? Like, are we learning about Georgia week to week? I mean, it depends on if you want to learn. I think that's the re- that's the reality here. I, I, like, I've got a pages full of notes on Georgia that I don't think I've heard anyone. Everyone is like, Jordan Davis is good. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But why is he good? What makes him good? What's he doing that makes it good? What's Georgia doing that's unique? What's Georgia doing that's interesting? And I think that, quite honestly, the conversation is pretty lazy. Um, it's, it's, we talked about this pre-show, but it's kind of boring. But the, the, like, nobody's talking about the fact that they move the bubble around. Have you heard anyone talk about the way they move the bubble on defense? Nope. Right. Do, do, you, do you know what that means? Not really. No, tell me. No. Right. So they move, they move their point, man. They move their – yes, Jordan Davis is a nose tackle, slide, nose guard, whatever you want to call him. But they move him off center. They move him to the guard. They'll move depending on what tight end is. They change what they do depending on what tight end – if a tight end's in the game. They change what they do based upon where the running back is aligned. They changed all these things, and they move the point. The point – is that little bubble at the front where usually it's a nose tackle on a center and that's your bubble. And then you play off the bubble to go make plays and they move it to the guard and you move it to the guard. Now all of a sudden the guard is getting heat that he's not used to getting. The guards getting heat straight up. Guards used to be an uncovered or, or facing someone that's coming directionally at him. Now the guards face somebody that's kind of head up on him and is going to attack him and then try to cross his face or control the two gaps. And as those two gaps are under control, we're looking at the other defensive ends, push and squeeze so that the linebackers can fast flow and we're also seeing something that i find to be it it, it really speaks to how critically stupid um college football quarterbacks are uh where nolan smith will put his hand down and then all of a sudden they think it's just a four-man front when he's one of the fastest players on the field, and you're giving him a shorter area to rush because they've moved that bubble to the other side. And the defensive end to his side is actually playing inside of like a four-eye. And I haven't heard anybody talk about any of this stuff, but I find it to be really fascinating because if you can give four a short porch to get to the quarterback, now you've got a complete you've got complete disruption because there's nothing to step up into because you've got 99 pushing up through the middle and there is no pocket to speak of. And so, I don't know, that's the stuff that I like about Georgia. It's not the stuff I'm hearing about Georgia, but that's the stuff I like about them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting down the stretch. I think we're all, you know, obviously anticipating an SEC championship game against Alabama. But, you know, they've got Tennessee in two weeks. I think that could be a really interesting matchup for them. I mean, we look for games that, you know, they'll be pushed a little bit. I mean, because, you know, we thought that that would happen against Florida. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it was what? Was it two minutes and 15 seconds game time? And it was and it was over. Um, So I I think Florida... Florida made a critical mistake, and this is one of those things where people get enamored with their new toys, and they don't realize that those new toys are limited. And watching Georgia talk pre-snap, their defense pointing out what's going to happen next when Richardson's in the game because he has a limited grasp of the offense. And watching them point, talk, know what's going to happen, and then immediately shut it down, that's... I, that's why I thought Emory Jones should have been the guy going into that football game because at least he could do something that they weren't going to point out immediately. But it is what it is. Yeah, Georgia Georgia played a heck of a football game. They shut it down. This is clearly a team, and it reminds me of LSU and Alabama. Like, they're in the same – I mean, of course it reminds me of all those teams. They're built – they're cut from the same cloth of teams that, like, they clearly get together and watch film. They clearly get together and point out things – there's a constant dialogue between Kirby Smart and the defensive coordinator and the defensive football players about what they're comfortable doing, what they do best, and what they should be, what they've noticed about a team. Like there's a clear dialogue there. I don't think most people think about or, quite frankly, care about things like that. But that's one thing that I notice is the way that they talk on defense speaks to a group of guys that when they're in the lounge or when they have off time, they're watching film together. Not just individually. They're watching it together and pointing out like, oh, I noticed this. Yeah, I, I think there's 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 a lot of, you know, things to like. And I think that's why you hear the way that other coaches talk about this team is is the stuff that you're noticing and that you're picking up. Um, so, you know, again, we'll, 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 we'll circle back on, on Georgia as warranted and, and try to, you know, talk about some new things with them and not just say, hey, they're really good. Um, but let's let's switch gears back over because this is a conversation we've been having in the Big Ten for a number of weeks now about you know who is the best team in the Big Ten and I, and I feel like we going into Halloween weekend felt like we were going to probably have an, an answer to that between Michigan Michigan State and Ohio State Penn State where this is the first time the Buckeyes have been pushed in a while and and Penn State did a did a great job I mean did not look like the team that we saw against Illinois a week previously. Um, so I want to start with the, the Ohio State angle on this because this was an offense, you know, that was basically getting whatever it wanted for for weeks and, you know, certainly the best offense in the country statistically yards per play. C.J. Stroud had looked really, really confident um, and a couple of things popped up that we hadn't really seen since the Oregon game. And this was Ohio State having trouble getting off the field in third down. Penn State was 11 of 18 on third down. And Ohio State struggled in the red zone. Um, I, I wonder, are, are those things to be concerned about now that we've seen them in the games that Ohio State has played against good teams? Or did is there something to be said? Like Ohio State wasn't really in danger of losing the game. I mean, it felt like they had control even as they were um, you know, these, these having these issues. Um, 
don't have to answer the first part about if you if you still think they're the best team in the Big Ten, but I'm curious what level of concern you have over those particular issues. I don't have any concern over the the red zone. Penn State's really good, and they're really good defensively. And when you get into the red zone, the field gets smaller. Ohio State thrives on a big field, on a long field. That's why they score from distance so often. Um, for them, a touchdown is just a play. And so when you get into the red zone, when you're not asking Brisker to cover 35 yards or come down from 12 yards into to make space, to make play in space, it's harder. It's always harder in the red zone. That's why we see teams struggle in the red zone. That's why we see defenses. That's why they, people can talk all this talk about bend, 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 but don't break, bend, but don't break. But the reality of it is it's literally easier to play defense in a compact space. And that's the reason why Ohio State stretches the field the way they do, because a lot of teams create an arbitrary compact space. So a lot of teams, if you're only going to run routes that go 12 yards and you're going to do that in the green zone, then guess what? You don't have you don't make them cover far. Ohio State doesn't do that. Ohio State makes you cover 40 yards down the field every single play. And when you're doing that, you create spacing and zones and there's creases and there's space. And that's why CJ Stroud's been so good and they've been doing a really good job of it. But when you have a hard physical barrier, and some people will call that barrier the back line of the end zone. I like to call it probably three yards into the end zone because after you don't need to you don't need to be deeper than that. And you can still cover to the back of the end zone when the ball comes out. You can still cover that seven yards to go make a play. When you're when you have a hard physical barrier, it makes it harder. The thing for me about them in the red zone is I want to see them hulk up in the run game a little bit more. And I think that's something that they're going to work on in practice in, in general because it is harder to just win through scheme in the red zone because guys can make safeties can make mistakes and still be in your passing lane. So there's that part. On the other side of it, I think they're still figuring out who they are defensively. I will say that I think Penn State uh, called a pretty marvelous game and mixing screen with this intermediate area uh, throws to to really when they were playing zone they call they they created a little they put two guys in a zone and tried to clear things out so that somebody had open space and then when Ohio State was playing some man coverage they just ran them as far as they could across the field they still don't have a real pass rush threat like a legitimate pass rush threat like they don't have what they were used to seeing out of them um and so that's the difference to me is there's a little bit more time. Clifford had more. He had hell. He had more time in this game than he had against um. What's your Jake? Um. Um. Not Illinois. The 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 um. Iowa. He had he had more time. He had more time in this game than he had against Iowa. And obviously he was hurt. He got he got he ended up getting hurt in that game. But when he was in the game against Iowa, it seemed like he had less time to make decisions. But also. Iowa's better at playing zone defense, so maybe it was less that and more the the kind of the the coverage and the swarm and the whole deal. Uh, Illinois, yeah, Illinois was I don't I just that game to me you just gotta I don't know how to charge that one to the game just because they he clearly wasn't feeling good at all and they still tried to kind of force it to make it happen. But for Ohio State, like if you're gonna be dedicated to the interior pressure from Garrett and, and Tyreek Williams. You gotta, you gotta, you you have to force that pressure. But I mean, this is a team that yes, they have twenty eight sacks on the season. But at the end of the day, they don't have a person that is like, oh, he's our Chase Young. He's our, 
He's our um, Nick Bosa. He's our Joey Bosa. He's our like he's our Sam Hubbard. We don't have they don't have that part of it. And when you don't have that part of it, and, and we're seeing the young guys get reps. Um, uh, what is it? Tua Moloa and uh, Jack Sawyer. We're seeing the young guys get reps. But a lot of those are package reps, and package reps aren't the same as like first down pass reps. And so we'll see how they shake how that shakes out. But yeah, they they it, 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 for me, I'm they have to fix this this getting off the field on third downs. But I'm less worried. I still think they're the best team in the Big Ten. Um, Michigan State's an interesting football team, but it's going to be interesting to see how um, Ohio State fixes or corrects these problems. I think at the end of the day, the goal for them is going to be. We're going to have to get big. We're going to have to be strong. We're going to have to hulk up. And that means pushing people around when you get into the red zone because you can't really kind of finesse your way out of that problem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's shift gears over to the team you just said is interesting, and that's in Michigan State. And and I I feel the same way. I I was at that game on Saturday, Michigan Michigan State in East Lansing, and it was it was just electric. I mean, you know, I, I was covering that game alongside people who covered a lot of those games, and you know, they'd never seen the town the way that it was. I mean, it took me two hours to go two miles right to get into the stadium. I mean, there were people everywhere. The energy was insane and then the game lived up to the hype and it, I, I thought that both teams played played well but I'm more curious about what we learned well because obviously you know Kenneth Walker was terrific he's the runaway favorite in the in the athletics Heisman straw poll this week absolutely almost everyone voted for him as their number one on their ballot he put the team on his back he was incredible I, I think um, you know what what's most interesting to me though is is what we learned about the coaches because Mel Tucker went for the win like he was aggressive he had that fourth down call um, where they throw that pass and it was wide open and, and Michigan wasn't was not ready for it and then you know those two point conversions and and things that you know again make sense and there's an analytics crowd that will explain why you do these things a little earlier than people expect. But still, it's a point of aggression. Um, it reads that way. And then you had Jim Harbaugh on the other side and, and all the field goals that they settled for. And, and you could even feel it in the first half that, um, you know, they had fourth and short twice and they kick field goals. And you're like, man, you know, they're leaving points on the field and this could come back to bite them. And I don't know if that's like a larger thing about how these coaches approach this particular game and the skill sets of the players on the field or the rivalry or whatever it is. But that I felt like is, is one of the things that I keep coming back to, you know, a few days after this game is, is those 
differences in the way that those coaches approached those moments? So I'll start with the red zone because we just talked about Ohio State in the red zone. They had six trips for the red zone. They scored six times. But four of those times were field goals. Why? Because it's hard to score in the red zone because Michigan State's really good against the run. They do a great job of maintaining gap integrity. And they didn't outmuscle them to get the score. And then with what Michigan was going to do and what Michigan was doing in a shorter area, Michigan State's much better playing pass coverage in a smaller area. They're really good at that. That's what they can do. What they can't do is cover down the field. Or what they can't do is cover intermediate when somebody else pushes them down the field. So, one, I do think that from a coaching standpoint, Mel Tucker, sure, maybe he's more aggressive. But I do think that Harbaugh deserves some credit because they clearly looked at that Western Kentucky film and said, oh, they stink at this. We're going to throw the ball almost 50 times this game. And we're going we're gonna to cross them and we're going to cross them and pick them and do all this stuff. We're going to do that to death and get out of our comfort zone to make them even more uncomfortable. And it worked. And they did a really good job of it. The problem is, and this is a working a thing, a theory that I've been working on for a while, but a touchdown is just one play. And Michigan State lives on a touchdown being just one play. So when I was doing a halftime show last week, they, they were like, well, Michigan won in total yards and time of possession. And I was like, time of possession doesn't matter. Who cares? Like, realistically, who do you think some of the best offenses in the country are? Michigan State, very explosive. Ohio State, incredibly explosive. Wake Forest, remarkably explosive. They are ranked 123, 112th, and 108th, respectively, in time of possession. Having the ball doesn't matter when you can score in one play. And they kicked... What they kick four field goals? Four times three is 12. That's two plays for Michigan State to be up by two. And that's the part that is the problem. And again, we talked about it with Ohio State, but you got to go, you got to be able to kind of hulk up and push people around. And Michigan State's not a team that's going to allow themselves to be pushed around. And that's the difference in this football game. And that's why we saw a, a, a game that Michigan jumped out to an early lead. But guess what? Who cares if you're up by 14 or 17 when three plays from now, I can have the game tied or I can have the game with a lead. And that's the biggest part here that I don't think enough folks realize. And, and a lot of, especially, you know, box score watchers don't realize that who cares about any of these things. The reality of it is if it takes me one play to get what I need, I'll take the one play. And we saw it multiple times from Walker. We saw it from Michigan State in general. We saw them be able to, in a play, not just flip the field, but score a touchdown or put themselves in position to score a touchdown. Yeah, yeah. I think that that was – it was it was very apparent. And, and you knew that going in, that Michigan State could score real quick. You know, these explosive plays and, and the play – you know, again, Kenneth Walker's been doing this all season, but the receivers have as well. And, and that's why, again, you know, there was a, you know, the 30 to 14 lead and it just didn't feel like it was enough. It felt like Michigan was controlling the game. Cade McNamara played the best game he's played all season and it, it wasn't a big enough lead. And obviously, you know, Michigan State comes all the way back and Kenneth Walker, you know, enters the Heisman race. And so that's that's where they are. But let, let's talk about another team that you talked about that, that scores really quickly and you can't really look at time of possession because the time of possession in their Army game, Army-Wake Forest game, is still one of my favorite parts of any box score because Wake Forest scored 70 points in 17 game minutes. Um, 
but that's the type of offense that they are as well. So we're going to call this segment our weekly wake check-in. Uh, it's just going to be a quick thoughts on where they are. They are undefeated, and, and people are not paying enough attention to them because it's Wake Forest, and we're still more focused. We collectively are still more focused on what's going wrong at Clemson. Um, but Wake is undefeated. They've got North Carolina this week. They crushed Duke last week. Sam Hartman is putting up insane numbers. Uh, ACC has good quarterbacks, by the way, if people are not paying attention. But uh, quick thoughts on, on what we think about this game at North Carolina this Saturday. Well, it's going to be a track meet. That's the reality. I mean, we saw it with Notre Dame. Notre Dame was able to keep pace with out, keep pace and outpace UNC. Uh, Wake Forest is gonna they're gonna try and do the same thing. Uh, neither defense is particularly good, and so I, I'm I'll be quick here. I think we're gonna see Hartman, the two Sams, both play phenomenal games, and whichever Sam plays better, they're gonna win. Yeah, I think I think these will be days where they both throw for like 400 yards. It's gonna be it's gonna be really fun. Uh, that's a game I would certainly have a screen on. Uh, when you are watching on Saturday, let's let's go. I know we said that we weren't going to do a ton on the college football playoff rankings, but let's do quick pred- predictions just so they're on record. Um, so when we're wrong later, people can make fun of us. I'll go first. Um, I'm going to say Georgia at number one. That's the only prediction I feel confident about because there's actually been quite a lot of turnover in the selection committee. It's it's over half new. So we don't actually know how they view how they view Cincinnati, which I think is going to inform a lot. So I'll go number two, Michigan State, on the strength of the Michigan win. I will go number three, Oklahoma, because they are undefeated and the committee likes undefeated teams. And number four, Cincinnati, because I'm going to get my hopes up and be ready to be crushed when they are not in the top four and the committee creates a buffer for them. But in my mind, I'm hopeful that they will be in the top four. They should be on the strength of the win at Notre Dame, which will be in the top 10 this year, this week and probably the rest of the season. So Georgia, Michigan State, Oklahoma, Cincinnati, I'm prepared to be wrong. Um, I hate this. And, uh, well, I'm making you do it. <laughs> I know. And I'm trying to figure out what makes good TV because that's the reality of this is a television show. It's a, it's a, it's a, what do we have? Five weeks. It's a five week miniseries. Uh, that culminates in it with, with a season fin- with a you know it, it's got a special two hour long season finale and <laughs> so I'm trying to I am stuck between you know what here's what I'll do I, I, I'm, Georgia's going to be first Oklahoma second Michigan State third and I'll say Cincinnati fourth and I think because there is more theater there is more intrigue there's more discussion there's more debate there's more of all those things with Ohio State and Alabama being on the outside looking in it also provides the avenue or a clear path for Cincinnati to then be removed I remind it reminds me of the early version right that had what did it have TCU or Baylor was in or even after that we had Mississippi State and Ole Miss were in it just gave them opportunity to not be in anymore and so I am that's what I'm doing you know what I think having Bama and Ohio State and Oregon all on the outside looking in I think that creates this element of those fan bases are going to be riled up they're going to click your stuff they're going to go to this they're going to do all that they're going to be talking about it nonstop. and I think that's the the best theater for this situation so that's what I'm going to do I'm going to go Georgia, Oklahoma, Michigan State, and then Cincinnati sliding in at four. 
All right, well, we'll see who's right in the first rankings, and these are going to be the most informative ones because, um, you know, Cincinnati's resume is mostly done. It's not going to get that much better from here on out. Let's move over to my favorite new segment that we do, which is our Flavor of the Week segment, which is we are updating our listeners on something we're cooking or planning to cook. And we also talk about just, you know, our Flavor of the Week on the field. And Felder, I'll let you go first because um, I know we've both got some some personal reasons for what we're cooking. And I really like yours because you got a little play on words here. Yeah. I um, So, yeah, my dad gets here today, like within hours of this show being posted uh, my dad will probably be here getting checked into his hotel, and um, he took me to my first ever college football game. It was at, it was in the Sun Bowl, and guess what? We got a big one in the Sun Bowl this week. It's UTSA taking on UTEP, and I don't think these teams get enough credit, um, whether it's Sincere McCourt. Like, I, these guys are all, they're so good. Both of these teams are really good. Looking forward to watching that this weekend, and I am aiming to win the Sun Bowl, S-O-N Bowl. Um my dad gets to spend a lot more time with my brother and his family than he does with me. And so it feels like my brother is ahead in the Sun Bowl uh, of being the best son. But guess what? My dad's coming, making my mom's specialty, making some fried pork chops, a little rice and gravy. We're going to throw some, uh, some asparagus or some broccoli on there. It's going to be really good. It's also the first meal that I ever made for my wife. And it's a thing that I am super confident in cooking that I think I can probably do my dad, my mom said that she doesn't ever have to make this anymore because she, I can just make it for her. And so that feels good. So, uh, yeah, aiming to take a step up in the Sun Bowl. Um, but to be fair, my, my real, um, it's not even cooking. My real hammer to win the Sun Bowl is I'm buying my dad a kegerator. So I think I'm going to win the Sun Bowl this year. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot to uh, chew on there that we will talk about off offline as well um my so my flavor of the week i'm going to i was i've been working it out actually as we were thinking about this segment what i'm gonna make because i am back at home on a saturday and as we've discussed on the show like i like to have something delicious smelling to look forward to and something to just you know to, to just have and 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 have something hearty you know halfway through yeah, the afternoon time nosh on yeah exactly and I was, you know, it's been a while since I've made my Grandma Millie's pasta vajoule. Her recipe is different. Like, first of all, I always like ordering this at restaurants because they're all so different. Like, some of them are a little bit more like minestrone and they have like more broth. My grandma's does not. It's mostly just noodles, beans, and then there's like a tomato, garlic, oregano sauce that it simmers in. And it's, it's, it's delicious. And she used to make this all the time. It would always be in the fridge, extras. We'd have it all the time. And we are approaching the one year anniversary of her passing. And it's like also like comfort soup season. And so it just feels like time. So I am going to make um, my grandma Millie's pasta vajoule. And I'm going to take BYU as my flavor of the week on the field because the game on Saturday was a total blast. It was, you know, I finally got back to my hotel room after covering Michigan, Michigan State and going out and watching the Ohio State Penn State game. And then this game is just like zigzags. You know, it's like a tennis match. You're just like going back and forth. And your head is just, you know, you're flying, watching these, these points scored. Um, and and Algier was was terrific. And I am close with BYU's athletic director, Tom Homo. He dressed up as Rafiki for Halloween. He owns Halloween. He is the best costumes year in and year out. So basically, it was just everything was coming up BYU over the weekend. And so they are my flavor of the week. I dig it. 
All right. Well, Felder, it's time for our last call. And I think we're going to stay on our on our food messaging. So I, I will let you go first. Yeah. Um, one, I do hate Halloween. I uh, realize it even more um, as a parent. I hate it <laughs> even more. Uh, there was a time I used to like Halloween. It, that time is not now. Um, but I will say this. We need to give Thanksgiving the respect that it deserves. It is the best holiday. My favorite holiday. It is what Christmas pretends to be, and I absolutely love it. It's a time where you get to spend time with your family, cooking the food that you guys love, and there are no presents involved. There is no what did you get, whatever, whatever. So I'm just saying give Thanksgiving the respect it deserves, and I'm gonna, I will also say this. Put some respect on the people that are doing the cooking for you, because if you're someone who sits on the couch while somebody else is in the kitchen, you 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 gotta you you gotta let them know that you really appreciate it because it is a lot of work, it is not easy, and so I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep pounding this drum. I don't need to see your Christmas decorations right now. Don't care about it. Don't care about you saying it's holiday season when what you really mean is I get to get stuff and decorate for Christmas. It's Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving time, and you can take your Christmas music and you can shove it. I wholeheartedly. Agree. I would like to cheers to your last call. Cheers. Because Thanksgiving is the best holiday, best holiday of the year, best food of the year. And as someone who made their first turkey and then made their second turkey last year, it is an art. It is it is not as hard as people like to claim it is. It just takes multiple days and, and a lot of preparation and planning. But to to produce a great Thanksgiving turkey for others is a sense of accomplishment. It is a, it is a major feather in the cap. It feels amazing. And everything else that comes along with Thanksgiving is delicious. And yes, I am mad that as soon as November 1st hit, everyone is now playing Christmas music. You are skipping a holiday and you're skipping the best one. So I completely agree. And also, just as a, as a half of a last call, I just wanted to pour one out for, for Felder's turnover, Iowa turnover, his favorite Iowa turnover every week bit. Because, um, well, the turnover luck and the turnover gods have really, really balanced that one out by going the other direction. And um, Iowa has really fallen off. So it's a shame, but that bit is long gone. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I think it's really cool to see because I honestly, like, I like to see football teams adjust. And what they did was they adjusted. They are, they're picking on, what is he, twenty little number 28, the safety. They're picking on him down the field. They are making Hankins cover vertically down the field, a thing that he's not as good at as he is when he's able to sit flat foot and make plays. I love to see football teams take what they see on film and then adjust to that. We talked about it with Michigan and then taking what Western Kentucky was able to do against against Michigan State and implementing that into their game plan. We're seeing what teams are able to do against Iowa, and they're implementing it into their game plan by stretching them vertically, Picking on this one guy who he's a really good, he's a good safety when he gets a chance to come down. He's not as good going backwards, but they're picking on him. And so I like seeing that. Like to me, that's what football's supposed to be. That's the thing I like about football is, yeah, it's not that their tone over luck ran out. It's that teams are doing something different and they're forcing them to play. They're running clear out routes that give them open space. And then Iowa tries to play man and they're not that good in man. And then when they try to play man, now you got an opportunity over the top and they can't get those turnovers because everybody's not looking at the quarterback. So I love that. I love it. I'm not sad that it's over. I look, we can pour one out because it is over, but I love that teams are adjusting 
and to me that's that's the heart of what makes football a really great sport is you watch something on film you see it over and over again you find a way to do something different or do something that that has been successful against them like teams are looking at that the the they're looking at it and i love that like that's i that's that's what i like about this game okay well some of us are like their bits and they're sad that they're over um but that's fair that's fair and and and, then that's where we'll wrap for this week um so we wanted to thank you as always for listening to power hour if you are not already an athletic subscriber you can sign up at theathletic.com slash nicole for a very special deal on an annual subscription uh be sure to check out this feed later in the week you've got one true pod later on with max olson jacks jason kersey and sam khan andy staples ari wasserman will be back later this week and Michael Felder and I will be back next Tuesday for the next episode of Power Hour. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.